0: I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Jackie Jones, who is the Labour MEP, Member of the European Parliament for Wales, quite recently elected uh, back in May. Jackie, tell me a bit about your roots and origins. Where, where were you born and brought up?
1: Well I was born in Germany near Frankfurt in Darmstadt and I lived there for about 11 years. My dad is was British, uh, Welsh from Langham in Pembrokeshire and my mum was German. They're both deceased now unfortunately but after about 11 years we moved to the UK and we had moved into a little cottage in West Wales in Broadhaven and then we decided to, well my parents decided to to live up in Inverness, where my grandmother was from. And then we moved to Florida, as you do. Good
0: Lord, so you've had (laughs) quite a varied upbringing. Because I was trying to work out your accent, and there are elements of various uh, areas in it, uh, aren't there? Do Do you often find people saying, where are you from, and trying to detect where you're from from your accent?
1: I taught at university for 26 years, and I used to say to the students, if you can guess... Where my accents from? Then I'll give you a first. It was a joke, by the way.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, where did you do your studies?
1: Um, I started off in Florida, did two years there of French and German literature. And then I decided to come to Wales, because I missed it, really. And went to University College Cardiff, did a BSc Econ in European Community Studies in the 80s. And I think we were the last cohort to get a degree from University College Cardiff in 1988. And then I did a master's with one of my tutors who taught the politics of the European community at the time. Um, so I did an MPhil, so research, 60,000 words later.
0: What was that on? Um, dissertation?
1: Part of the European community, again, I've specialised in the European Union things for quite a long time. And then I decided um, I should have a job, really. But my tutor said... Why don't you come to Brussels with me as a trainee? So I became a Blue Book trainee in... What does 19- that mean? There's an official scheme where you can uh, apply to be a stagiaire, a trainee, in one of the institutions of the what is now called the European Union. And I applied for that and got in. And my master's was looking at the Economic and Social Committee. So I became a trainee there in order to better understand what it was all about. And the first thing that we did in the Economic and Social Committee is um, take a vote on the Social Charter. So right from the word go, I was involved in how that has progressed throughout the years. It's become a big, big issue, of course, for for us.
0: Because originally, of course, the UK had an exemption from the Social yeah. Charter, didn't it? And yes. the Social yeah. Charter was essentially about trying to give something to ordinary people yes. in terms of their rights, wasn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. But I think it was under the what, Thatcher government and the major government that they didn't want no, no, to go didn't. down that route. So they, were, no. you know, they wanted to have a different, perhaps more American model in terms of labour or whatever. But um,
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say.
0: You then became, in your studies and with the work that you did, more uh, legally based, didn't you? Well, you yes, know.
1: I did a two-year law degree at Cardiff University. Again, all three degrees from Cardiff University. And then I went to bar school the following year. But I didn't want to practice, so I, I've got the title of barrister. And now you can't have that title anymore unless you've practiced, but I, I can still claim it. And uh, decided to become a tutor instead. So I started teaching part-time at Cardiff, and then was put on full-time yearly contracts, and then got a permanent job at University of the West of England in 1997. In Bristol? Yes.
0: Okay, and so what have you been teaching? Uh, What were you teaching since then, essentially? Um,
1: In 26 years, you do an awful lot of teaching of different subjects, so law more generally for first years, so introduction to the legal system, constitutional law, but European Union law, German law. I specialised in trusts law, and if you talk to any law students, they will tell you, oh my gosh, trusts really, it's quite hard, and it's... uh, not seen very favourably, but I've done land law. And then towards the maybe last ten years, I specialised in human rights, discrimination law, and women's human rights in particular, so I became very active as a um, in the third sector, volunteering.
0: Your history is very much immersed in what some people would describe as the European project. And, of course, there are those on the other side of the fence who have this narrative that the European Union is a, uh, a dreadful monolith and that there is this drive towards uh, integration where we would be subsumed within a super state and that sort of thing. How realistic or how distorted do you think that narrative is?
1: I've never seen it um, like that at all. I think with my background, having parents who grew up in the war on either side... Of uh, the divide. My father, the story is that he was one of the children who was evacuated from London and that's where he went to the highlands in Scotland, to his family up there. And my mother he was nine years old when the war finished. My mother was in Germany in Darmstadt which was firebombed and in one night I don't know, maybe 10,000 people died. So she was 14 when the war ended. They have vivid memories from that and I grew up with that. So, for me, a lot of it was about, and is about, securing peace in, on the European continent. And I would like to have peace across the world, not just in Europe, by the way. And a peaceful Europe is so significant because on the back of that, or as a foundation of that, we can build everything else that is positive about being a human being on this planet. One of the principles that the European Union espouses, and I'm really in favour is the polluter pace and uh, making sure that climate action is across the world with the European Union as a power block being able to ensure that.
0: So, European power bloc.
1: Yes, Um, the European Union negotiating at UN level, at regional levels, etc. in different um, large um, gatherings in order to ensure the positive sides of um, climate action. That's an example. I also believe in having the European Union be closer to its citizens and all those who are within the European Union. So collective action, positive action on refugee crisis on uh, asylum seeking, on um, equality in particular, and diversity. We've seen a terrible increase in in racist incidents across the the globe at the moment. So all of those actions, I think, are really significant. I also, as a lawyer, am really in favour of having legal standards and having action on employment law, for example that is Europe-wide, so you have different standards, different sets of safety mechanisms that are are uniform throughout the European continent that have a certain level of safety for everyone and uh, protections for everyone. And certainly being in the third sector talking about women's rights, it's really significant to have the European Union laws that are transposed into UK law and make sure that those minima are adhered to. So there's an awful lot of positive actions that the European Union takes when I'm in favour of it.
0: Why do you think it is then, uh, with all of these positive attributes that the European Union has, that that narrative doesn't cut through for a lot of people and Mm -hmm. that in the referendum in 2016 many saw the EU as, if you like, the enemy? And that's how it was portrayed by some people, wasn't it, on the other side. Why have they been able to cut through with that narrative, do you think?
1: I don't think there's one answer. I think there are myriad answers to that, um, to that question. And I certainly don't have all the answers to, to that because everyone will have a different story to, to tell you about it. Like I just had my story about why I'm so in favour of the European Union. But certainly um, back in 2015, 2016, there was a very negative narrative around asylum seekers and uh, around people coming from different parts of the globe um, and invading, um, in inverted commas, the, the European continent and coming to the UK potentially. And I can understand why people might be concerned about their jobs and about their ways of life. I don't subscribe to that particularly because when you look at the numbers, and I taught immigration law and asylum law for a number of years, the numbers were not the same as what that was being espoused at the time. Um, but certainly I don't think the European Union has been fantastic about advertising the positive effects of, of, of what it does or what it has potential to do and how um, many democratic institutions there actually are and processes there are in the European Union. A lot of people that um, I spoke to, for example, on the doorstep weren't necessarily familiar with why would they be, the internal mechanisms of how you take a decision in the European Union. How do you get a directive passed? That's something I taught at university, but other than that, why would you know that necessarily? So I also think that the media has a role to play in this. Not necessarily all negative at all, I don't think, because why newspapers are there to sell stories? And... Sometimes, when you have um, interesting figures, and I won't name names, who give you different stories, it might be more interesting for the reader to, to see that story rather than a positive, oh, right, so we've got um, extra safety measures in place for light bulbs or whatever it might be, um, or very, very important, I don't know, buggies for, for children, you know. So there's a choice to be made there. Um, in 1992, I wrote my dissertation, the 60,000-word dissertation that I mentioned, and on the first page, I, I had to move offices recently when I left my job in December, and on the first page it says, there isn't enough positive information about the European community at the time, that was written in 1992. So it's 40 years of having a relatively negative narrative around what the European Union does, and... That's very difficult to counter in six weeks just before the referendum. I also think it, we need to educate people more about a variety of different things, not just the European Union, not just about lawmaking, but about our constitutional principles and what we stand for as a democracy in the, European, in the UK, and about Wales and how it, what it, its constitution looks like in schools right from day one.
0: You said you weren't yeah. going to name any names. Well, I'll name someone, Boris Johnson, who is known from his days at the Daily Telegraph to have actually made up stories about stupid things like bent bananas, mm-hmm. um, which captured people's imagination and which many people still believe to be true. And it's very difficult, I suppose, to counter many years of negative propaganda, if you like, from people who have perhaps got a vested interest in wanting to be out of the EU. What vested interests do you think there are that wants the UK to be out of the EU?
1: I'm sure there are many vested interests, one way or the other, that's for sure. I think vested interests who want us out of the European Union, one of them is that the, the EU anti-tax Avoidance directive comes on stream very soon, and November the the first is that. I think I think it's November. Very coincidental date, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. you'll have to check on that date for me, but I think it's imminent. And obviously, those individuals and companies who have a large sums of money offshore are worried about it and I think it, that is a fantastic innovation and hopefully it'll be the Googles of the world and those who are have vested interest in the big money that will be caught by it.
0: But of course if the UK is out of the EU then these people will be able to continue to right. have their offshore yeah. operations going on and I mean the, the, the UK has got a number of tiny places scattered around the Caribbean um, and elsewhere which are effectively tax havens, uh, places like the British Virgin Islands and yes, there's and another the place called the, the Caymans, the mm. Turks and Caicos yes. Islands, I think, yes. is another. And these places soak up billions of pounds, don't we? Which, if, if it was properly taxed, would do an enormous amount for regenerating... The British economy:
1: Yes, and the Panama Papers um, of course highlighted those uh, some of those individuals, and um, lots of people were implicated there as well, um, right from the top downwards. So we'll see what happens next. Um, I hope we don't leave. Um, I hope those kinds of directives will will come on stream, and of course, equality uh, directives that we desperately need as well that um, stay here in the UK. Workers' rights, for one. I'm really concerned that there's going to be uh, a real regression in workers' rights and protections. And uh, we've already seen um, ASDA, um, what's happened there, with um, them trying to make workers sign a new contract to literally contracts out of some of their holiday that is guaranteed through European law and UK law, of course, now, with four weeks paid holiday. I think it's absolutely scandalous.
0: Because there are people who favour leave, who have got deregulation type agenda which is very much linked to the kind of economy that Mr Trump uh, has in the United States where it's possible uh, to dismiss people at will, for example, whereas we have uh, long established um, rights dating effectively back to, was it the 1978 Employment Protection Act, is it? Is that something like that? Yeah, um, the 70s. Yeah, it's yes. the so 1970s. Yes. And what the argument is, is that those who want to take Britain out of the EU want to roll back a lot of these gains that have been achieved uh, over the years. Does that make you more... Incredulous, if you like, that there are people on the left who think it's a good idea to come out of the EU.
1: Yes and no. Uh, I think it's all interrelated, isn't it? If you have forty years of, uh, for want of a better word, you use the word propaganda, saying that the EU or the European Economic Community is bad and we shouldn't be adhering to a supranational institution, then you. That narrative is going to take hold and internationalism is something that I'm absolutely passionate about and and believe in, but there are different views on what that looks like of course, so I I respect that, that's absolutely fine I think we're better off in the European Union and reforming it, but you know, there are others who who believe we shouldn't have any kind of system like that that's okay Um, I think they'll miss it once it's gone and we'll will see not a gradual but a cliff edge um, diminution of workers say uh, protections and rights. And I hope we don't get there. I really do. How long have you been involved
0: <coughs> with the Labour Party for?
1: Oh, many years now. I couldn't tell you quite a few years.
0: Yeah. And that's been in Cardiff because you've been in Cardiff for yes. quite a long time, haven't yeah. you?
1: I've been here um, since 1985.
0: Yeah. Did you ever have any. Well, you, I think you've stood for the council, haven't you, in yes, the I past?
1: Have. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, not successfully. Nope. Um, but in terms of any kind of sort of national career as a politician, has that been something that you have aspired to or thought of?
1: Not particularly. I've been an academic for 26 years and uh, I decided that I wanted to change. I'd just had enough of academic life. It's changed beyond recognition and therefore left University of the West of England in December. So at that point, we did not know there were going to be European Parliament elections at all in May. And in fact, we were heading out, weren't we, on the 29th of March. So no, it hasn't been a particular aspiration. I was asked to stand in the local council election and I was honoured to be asked and stood and unfortunately didn't make it.
0: So... You left the University of Western England last December. What were your intentions at that time? Then were you going to get another job in yes. the field? Yeah. yeah,
1: something. I was hoping to take a little time out because I'd never had, luckily enough uh, any time off employment since I got my job in Cardiff. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice just to sort of stop and think about what I'd like to do next if 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 I can get another job somewhere? And uh, then this came along, and I applied. How did you
0: come to be selected then? What was the mechanism for that?
1: Um, Well, there was very straightforward an email. Anyone interested in standing for the European Parliament elections, I applied and um, went for an interview. And then I was was told, would you like to be number one on the list? And I said, yes, thank you. And then we started um, campaigning the next day because there was so little time. I think it was three weeks. The campaign was very two short weeks, period yeah.
0: yeah so I think it was uh, was it the Welsh executive uh, committee that actually made the selection
1: I can't remember who who was on the selecting committee um, it could be yeah but I'd have to because
0: there wasn't time was there to have a proper yeah, selection process yeah. involving members of the party
1: yeah I if I remember right it was a variety of there were four people on the panel so they are from different parts of the Labour Party. That's what I can remember.
0: Now, in the campaign, of course, um, you were in a difficult position, uh, Jackie, because you were a Remainer and the other candidates were Remainers, and yet the official line of the Labour Party was rather different, wasn't it? Um, Because Jeremy Corbyn um, has, um, it has been uh, put this way, um, sat on the fence, uh, and therefore... Um, there was a contradiction between the message that you were wanting to convey to the public and the official line of the Labour Party. Did you find that embarrassing to deal with, difficult to deal with?
1: I didn't find it embarrassing at all, um, because I understood exactly where uh, Labour was coming from. Um, We have Leavers and Remainers in every constituency, and that includes Wales, of course. And you've got to acknowledge that, and, and I think that is democratic. Because of my background, you heard a little bit today about it, uh, and um, all, th- all the rest of us, we believed and um, in Remain. So we came out straight away in favour of Remain, and uh, of course the second referendum, and campaigning to Remain. That was part of the Labour Party party policy as well. Um, further down the line, in the three-stage um, test. So we weren't that far away, and of course, the very next day after the elections, Mark Drakeford came out absolutely one hundred percent in favour of Remain and a second referendum. So I was very grateful to him for that.
0: But that was the day after yes, it was. the uh, yes. election. Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course, ordinary voters um, were in a difficult position judging um, the Labour Party's stance, weren't yes. they? Because. They were contradictions between what you were arguing for and what the official line of the mm. Labour Party was, yeah. and that's a that's a terrible position to put candidates in, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, but I mean, essentially, what you were doing you were arguing for a programme that the Labour Party wasn't signed up to in terms of unequivocal remain.
1: Well, it was party policy to to have a to be in favour of a second referendum and to. Um, to campaign for Remain. It was a general election, wasn't it? At the third stage. Yeah. We were fast-forwarding that, that's how we put it, to straight away, because what we were hearing on the doorstep is that we've got to be very straightforward. And the position was problematic, uh, complicated, and people didn't really understand it. I don't know if it was contradictory. I wouldn't call it contradictory. I would call it seeing where the direction of travel was going and making a, a call about where we wanted to be and how we were going to get a Labour voice into the European Parliament, which I think was absolutely essential and, uh, and it's key to have us there.
0: But a lot of voters decided, even if they were normal normally Labour Party supporters, but they couldn't support the Labour Party on that occasion because of this, what was seen as contradiction or equivocation. And so you must have found that a lot of the people, when you were knocking on doors, who would normally be Labour supporters, were saying they were going to be voting for Plaid Cymru or for the Liberal Democrats. How did you respond to to them when they said that?
1: It's heartbreaking to hear that, of course, from party members in particular, but it wasn't just one one message that was coming back. It might be, "I voted out uh, in the referendum. I think we should stay out." It could be, um, "I'm a Remainer and I think we should be remaining." So it was, you know, it wasn't straightforward either on the doorstep. There were many again going back to the 2016 referendum. There were many reasons why people voted the way they did. Um, the same thing on, on on the doorstep during the the campaign. So the best option we felt as all four of us, because we were completely united, is to have one stance and to stick to that. And whatever came back on the doorstep, this is what we believed in. And so therefore we published it. We were very open about it. And I think people appreciated it. And I think because it was pretty clear that I'd been doing European Union issues and been a professor who taught European law, that I couldn't take it different stance really that that wouldn't make sense Um, people appreciated that as well not everyone of course and that's a matter for our party at the highest level to take the lessons from that and we have to be in my view very clear whatever that message is it's got to be clear but that message was rather confusing
0: in 2015 and 2016 did you vote for Jeremy Corbyn as the leader? yes on both occasions?
1: Um, I don't remember. That's the honest answer.
0: So, but you, you, in 2016, you voted for him against Owen Smith, did you? No, t-
1: 2015 I voted for him. That's right, yeah. Right, 2015 yeah. you voted for him. Yeah.
0: But by 2016, you voted for Owen Smith?
1: I did, and I uh, stood up in the constituency, and I spoke for Owen Smith, so that's on record that, that I did that. I do think that Jeremy Corbyn, since then, has done a very good job. And I'm not just saying that. But I I loved the manifesto, and I went around uh, uh, campaigning for it. And in the campaign itself, this last campaign, um, I was very proud to be able to stand on the doorstep and say, this manifesto is really good. And the other thing I was really proud of was the um, Socialist and Democratic Group in the European Parliament took a lot of the ideas from the manifesto and I was so happy with that because we could, and you heard it on air as well, that I was advocating for that manifesto because it was about the people. It was for the many, not the few. So I was really happy about that.
0: So you were elected as an MEP in, uh, in May. May. Uh, officially, according to Boris Johnson, your term of office will finish on October the 31st. We yes. don't know how that's going to play out. But it must be quite an unsettling feeling to be in a situation where you don't know how long your mandate is going to last for. What, what, how do you cope with that, uh, Jackie?
1: Well, I didn't know I was what I was going to do in January, so <laughs> if I had wanted to be um, in a long-term position, I would have stayed as an academic because I'd been one for 26 years, so I was ready to, to do something different, whatever that might look like, and this is a dream come true, of course, to, to do something I'm very passionate about and uh, I truly 100% believe in. I do think we do need to reform, but um, that's with any institution you look at. Um, so that that doesn't worry me so much. I'm more worried about um, staff who whose contract uh, comes to an end on the 31st of October, and that's difficult for them, because we don't know what's going to happen next for them.
0: There's all sorts of manoeuvring going on at the moment, isn't there, in terms of how the denouement of uh, this Brexit saga will play out. Um, And it remains unclear. Yes. Um, What would be your best guess as to how things will resolve themselves?
1: Well, if anyone tells you they know what's happening next, I I, I don't think they're telling you the truth. So um, I I honestly don't know Um, what happened today um, on the day of... uh,
0: we're we 're talking, we're recording this on the yeah. day when it 's been announced that the government is going to try to halt um, parliamentary business after a couple of weeks in september yes. so so that 's that's the, the, the the position yes. um, that in itself, Jackie, would you see that um, bringing into play your experience as a as a lawyer? Would you see that as um, taking us into, into new constitutional territory and quite dangerous waters?
1: Very dangerous. What's next? If you can do it for one thing, you can do it for other things. Um, so a precedent would be set. And I hope with all of my heart and all of my will and everyone else's, I hope, that this doesn't happen for all of us. Because um, when they come for one, they will come for others. As a lawyer, of course, I believe in a written constitution. Um, We've got a partly written constitution, uh, which has been tried and tested for hundreds of years and has been added to in a very sensible, um, moderate way. This is not sensible or moderate. This is unwritten. And it's effectively a coup. I'm really concerned, not just for us, but also for the next generation. What's going to happen next? So, no, this has to be stopped. I hope the Queen's listening. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean the, di- the, the difficulty is um, as, as you say that we have what is effectively a hybrid constitution isn 't it because yes. it's partly written but partly unwritten, and the unwritten element of it is predicated on the fact that those in a position of authority are going to act reasonably and have respect for um, for the, the constitution law. the rule of law well you know it's arguably the case that the man at the top of the UK government at the moment does not fall into that category, and that he's quite prepared to um, act in a cavalier fashion. Mm. I mean, there is evidence from his past that that is uh, mm. strongly a possibility. Um, do, you mean,
1: do you mean the unelected bureaucrat, or do you mean uh, Well, Johnson, I'm talking uh, I'm about
0: the elected prime minister, <laughs> okay, correct, <laughs> right, okay. elected by the um, small numbers—hundred, uh, thirty thousand—is it—members of the Conservative mm-hmm. Party. But that's part of the. Way in which our system functions, isn't it? But, um, so you've got a situation where Boris Johnson is obviously concerned that um, opposition uh, parties could uh, coalesce and could seek to introduce legislation yes. that would not be to his liking and which would um, frustrate his attempt to have a no deal Brexit. And therefore, what he's doing is seeking to use what many would see as a, an anachronistic mechanism to to thwart those who would say that they represent parliamentary democracy but the problem is maybe that we have relied too long on something which when you examine it doesn't stack up or it only stacks up if people play by the unwritten rules mm. but if you've got someone in a position of authority as the prime minister advised by people who have got a very definite agenda as to what they want to achieve, which involves undermining parliamentary democracy, despite what they were arguing for at the time of the referendum, then you're into uh, difficult waters. But it, I mean, it brings in the whole question of, you know, is our constitutional monarchy in itself a democratic mm. institution? I mean, where do you stand on that?
1: Um, I did say before the referendum that we should have um, a long conversation about where we want to go, and that would include the constitutional makeup of the United Kingdom. And I am in favour of devolution, uh, not independence, but devolution, and more more of it. And I've argued in articles for devolving different aspects of criminal justice, for example, um, more to the Welsh uh, Assembly or Senate. And I think it's time, maybe this is part of it, you know, a disintegration of some of the institutions that are perhaps, I don't know, uh, no longer fit for purpose, that we need to really sit down and have a long, long, hard look at ourselves and see where we want to be in the 21st century. And that includes membership of the European Union as well, membership of the United Nations, membership of everything. I'm not an anarchist in one way or at all I do believe in being members of all of that but we do need a written constitution absolutely 100% Uh, I've always said it I mean I've lived in Germany and in America you know and in France and in Belgium they all have written constitutions and there's a lot to be said for written constitutions not just that it gives lawyers jobs you know because you can always argue something or other lawyers will always have jobs whether it's written or unwritten but um, it means that everyone can see it for themselves, written on a piece of paper or online, and can judge for themselves. In Germany, we used to get the basic law. It's a little A5 booklet that you get in school. I believe in that level of transparency that we should have the state work for us, not the other way around.
0: Are you a Republican or a Royalist?
1: I don't have anything against the Queen at all I think when she became Queen it was a very different world. I think there's a lot to be said for the Commonwealth and for the Royals to be heads of the Commonwealth I do think that I'm more in favour of a federal system than I am of a just a pure monarchy so I'm fudging it slightly because I would rather we discuss it as a nation, and see what we can come up with. Then me put my views forward now, but I certainly think a more federal system would be better for all of us. Uh, then, but that could have a monarch at, at its head as well. I mean, that's that's a matter for for us to decide as a, as a nation. Over
0: the last few years, there have been quite a lot of people including Gordon Brown, for example, who been arguing that there needs to be some kind of um, look at the Constitution of the UK, and Carwyn Jones, when he was the First Minister, was arguing Mm -hmm. the same. And yet, the great majority of people on the right, and certainly those who are associated with the uh, current government of Boris Johnson, don't seem to be in any way interested in pursuing that sort of agenda. Um, Mm -hmm. They just want to bat it off. Do you think that this... uh, We are... Uh, you would probably agree in the midst of a constitutional crisis at the moment Definitely. yeah do you think that <coughs> this should be the spark for a wide-ranging look at where we go as a as a nation or mm-hmm. as a, as a group of nations as a, as a uk in terms of the constitutional future
1: mm. I, I tend to say decisions made in fear are not good decisions and laws based on particular scenarios aren't necessarily good law normative instruments so not right now as in today or next week or in a fortnight uh, because i don't think we're in the right mindset because we have to deal with this crisis first it's too important too current that we really need to to move on that but certainly in a few months time or in a year's time when things hopefully i don't know if they will but if they've calmed down because it has to be measured, it has to be um, over a longer period of time and many different options have to be brought forward. Um, similar, but absolutely not the same, as the Truth and Conciliation Commissions that South Africa went through, and I'm not purporting to, to, to replicate that system, but taking time after um, you know, the system was broken down. And I'm not advocating breaking down the system here either, so, so I just want to make that clear. Um, But certainly we need a longer conversation.
0: If Boris Johnson is successful and is able to, if you like, subvert the will of Parliament and take the UK out of the EU on the 31st of October, having effectively closed down Parliament, what do we do then?
1: Well, there's a lot of ifs in there. Um, If he closes Parliament, we, we don't know what he'll do next, so in many respects we have to be reactionary. As Democrats, um, and react to what he he does in the meantime, what actions he takes. If we're talking about a No Deal Brexit, we're really talking about the disintegration, in my view, of a lot of the structures and systems that we have, and I'm I am really worried about all of those scenarios that we've read about and um, we know about now, and more. I'm very grateful that a lot of the industries are coming forward and giving us more details about what it's going to do to them. And that's going to impact on every single thing that we do, as far as I can tell. Then, after that, um, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't want to guess. I'd rather not guess.
0: You said it was some foreboding, Jackie.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm not happy about it, let's put it that way, put it mildly. I'm worried.
0: Okay, Jackie Jones? Thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank
0: you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.